Hi, I'm Adam Murray. Subtle Disruptors is about pondering two questions. What does it mean to live well in this moment, given the context within which we find ourselves? And how can we shape the world we live in so that it becomes closer to the one we want to inhabit? I do this by talking with people who you probably haven't heard of, but who I think are embodying a fascinating response to these two questions and doing it in a way that involves subtle changes all of us can make. I want you and I to get as much as possible out of these stories and to feel encouraged, connected and resolute in our own quests of subtle disruption. This week I'm talking with Bronwyn King. Here's a little bit from Bronwyn. But most people are not aware that that money which is invested on their behalf is very routinely invested in um, companies that may uh, you know, really concern them when they know what those companies do. Bronwyn and I shared some lunch and a conversation about the impact of our unconscious investment. But before I tell you about it, here is a quick word from our sponsor for this week. A brand new product to market, Roy Mint Company produced the highest quality fresh mints you can find and through a connection to local artists have created an entirely different mint experience. Available only in select coffee shops, partnered locations and online, you can learn more at roymintco.com and share their journey by following Roy Mint Co. on Instagram. Bronwyn King is a Melbourne oncologist who now works at this part-time and spends the rest of her days in what could be described as trying to put herself out of a job. With more than 30% of cancers directly attributable to tobacco use, and with a majority of us unknowingly investing our retirement savings in tobacco businesses, Bronwyn's decided to do something about rectifying these two things by founding the not-for-profit organisation Tobacco-Free Portfolios. Thanks for joining me and I hope you enjoy listening to Bronwyn King on the subtle disruption of our unconscious investment in tobacco. From what I always start by asking is, where are we and why have you chosen this place for us to chat? We are at Gigi's Cafe in East Melbourne, which is right beside the Epworth Hospital, where I run one of my clinics on Tuesdays. And uh, I've had many, many meetings here relating to tobacco-free portfolios, and they do a great lunch. <laughs> Who, okay, so let's talk about tobacco-free portfolios. Who are you talking with? Who are you meeting with when you're doing those discussions? I'm most of the time meeting with leaders in the finance sector. So CEOs, chief investment officers, um, trustees of Australian superannuation funds, banks, insurers, fund managers, really all different aspects of the finance sector. And having one-on-one meetings and... uh, discussing the issue of tobacco-free investment, talking about what tobacco means to the health sector and how vital it is that we really bridge the gap that currently exists between the health sector and the finance sector on tobacco um, is really an effective way of moving forward with the work that we're doing. Yeah. So, like, when when I'm doing my superannuation, for example, it seems like, and I actually invest my superannuation with an ethical fund, so it's probably even more extreme than this, but I know the basics are often, do you want to invest in alcohol, arms and gambling? They're probably the three that come up most. Is that, that's not standard? No, it's not. So in fact, I mean, you're a bit unlike the typical Australian worker because you obviously have an interest in where your money 
is placed and, and knowledge of that. But in fact, most of Australians are really unaware of where their super is being invested. We know that superannuation is compulsory and most Australians know that they've got money somewhere doing something, yeah. but most people are not aware that that money, which is invested on their behalf, is very routinely invested in um, companies that may uh, you know, really concern them when they know what those companies do. And I was just like that in uh, 2010 when I had a meeting uh, with my finance um, advisor, so it was an accountant, who was giving us some advice because my husband and I were buying a house. And he said to me, look, you really need to sort out your money. How much money do you have in superannuation? And I had no idea. I knew that I'd had a superannuation account for at least a decade, but I, had, I don't think I even knew the name of my account or, or the fund. But I, that prompted um, me to arrange a meeting with the representative from my super fund, and it was actually Health Super, which was the fund for all employees at the Peter McCallum Cancer Centre where I worked at the time. Yeah. And I had a coffee with this man at the cafeteria at the cancer hospital, and we had a lovely chat, and he showed me how much money I had, and we talked about a few things, and we both had a coffee, and I shook his hand and walked away, and completely as an afterthought, I came back to the table, and I said, oh, by the way, was I meant to tell you what to do with that money? And he said, no, 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 you don't need to worry. It's completely taken care of. You're in the default option. And I said, oh, option? Does that mean there are other options? And he looked at me and he rolled his eyes and he said, oh, <laughs> look, there is this one greenie option for people who have a problem with investing in mining alcohol or tobacco. And then there was silence. And I said, did you just say tobacco? And he said, yes. And I said, so are you telling me I'm currently investing in tobacco? And he said, oh, yes, everybody is. And so that was how I found out that I personally held stock in tobacco companies. Yeah. And then, of course, I had to find out a lot more about that. I'm, I'm a clinician by trade. I'm not an expert in finance. And so after doing a lot of um, research and having a lot of kind friends take me aside and teach me the basics of Australian superannuation, I found out that, in fact, most Australians are owners of tobacco companies via their superannuation. And I think most Australians would be very disappointed to know that. Yeah. And that's probably because, I guess, the returns are quite high. Well, it's interesting because the reason it mainly occurs is because the finance sector really just treats the tobacco industry like any other industry. So they treat it the same as tech stocks or what, what, whatever other companies are listed are just, tobacco companies are really just thrown in the mix. And so in fact, the way that most people get tobacco in their superannuation portfolio is it's via international equities or international shares. Right. So most people have some international shares in their portfolio. Yep. The most common way of getting those shares is by buying into an index. So, for example, you might buy into the S&P 500 or the FTSE 100 or whatever the index is. But nearly all of the world's indices list tobacco companies because they're big listed companies. If you buy into the index, you get a little bit of every single company on that index. Yeah. So if you don't apply any special thinking to that process, you will have some tobacco in your portfolio. So that's the, the most common way that people end up with tobacco in their portfolios. The other way is if the financial organisation specifically selects tobacco and says, we think that's a great stock and we want those companies in our portfolio. So that's sort of active investment. That's actually less common in Australia, but it does happen. And there are some 
financial institutions out there um, that do that, others don't. Yeah. Well, take us on the next step of that journey for you. So you had that conversation, realised that you were investing in tobacco through your super. What did you do next? Well, I think I did a bit of soul searching because my background is as an oncologist. The very first job I did after I graduated as a medical practitioner in Australia, so I did my intern year, and then I was asked to work for three months at the Peter McCallum Cancer Centre on the lung cancer ward. That's how I started medicine. And the patients who need radiation, which is what I do, I'm a radiation oncologist, the patients who need radiation for lung cancer are often the most sick patients with lung cancer. And so every day on that ward, we had discussions with our patients about dying and death. We saw the impact of tobacco on not just the patients, but on their families. And of course, most of my patients were smokers. Um, most of them had also started smoking in their childhood years. And under the age of 12, you mean? Or well, childhood or early teenage years, so under the age of 18. And so the impact of tobacco hit me really hard. And it was always sort of in the back of my mind when I was doing my radiation oncology training because 30% of cancers are caused by tobacco. And it really struck me that so many of my patients should never have been my patients at all. This was a preventable... Um, it, the disease that they were suffering from was quite probably preventable. Yeah. And so... I really knew what tobacco did to people. So the idea that I would therefore have shares in tobacco companies was something that did not sit comfortably with me. And so I raised the issue with the CEO of Peter McCallum Cancer Centre. He was very concerned and 24 hours later he rang me back and he said, I've booked you in to present to the CEO and the investment team at Health Super. Wow. And that kicked off this journey. Yeah. And so well, what are you doing now? Maybe we can leapfrog a little, a little bit. What what does, you've got your practices still, which are doing two days a week. What else are you doing? So since that time, um, that work gradually evolved to form the not-for-profit tobacco-free portfolios. And now we have a team of three. So there's me in Melbourne, there's uh, Claire Payne, the Chief Operating Officer in Sydney, and we have a UK director in London. And we engage professionally, quietly behind the scenes with finance leaders to educate them about tobacco, in particular telling them about the UN Tobacco Treaty, talking about how tobacco control is vital for achievement of the Sustainable Development Goals, and we ask them to reconsider and reflect on their commercial relationships with the tobacco industry. So for example, for banks, we talk to them about whether they would consider stopping lending money to tobacco companies. With um, other financial institutions, we ask them to stop investing in the tobacco industry. And in Australia, that conversation has gone extremely well. There's now 35 Australian superannuation funds that are tobacco free, and that represents about 40% of institutional wow. investors in Australia, which yeah. is fantastic. Um, and many more conversations are at quite an advanced point, and um, hopefully that will tip over the 50% line this year. Okay. And globally, uh, in 2015, the um, global peak body for cancer, which is called the Union for International Cancer Control, they very kindly supported us, gave us some seed funding and enabled a global reach for our work. So we now work with um, organisations based in many locations in the world and last year, 2016, was a fantastic year for us because we saw tobacco-free moves from some big global organisations, including 
um, AXA, so one of the world's biggest insurers. In one decision, they got rid of $2.6 billion worth of tobacco industry assets. And uh, later on in the year, we saw tobacco-free moves by the biggest Swedish pension fund, the biggest French pension fund, the Irish sovereign wealth fund, and CalPERS, the USA's biggest pension fund. So there's a lot of momentum there, there's a lot of interest there, and there's a lot of great finance leaders who really like this work, and they have very kindly helped us expand our reach. I don't quite get how... So the link between, say, the UN Treaty on Tobacco, uh, the, uh, the Sustainable Development Goals, and reduced investment in by financial institutions and superannuation funds and things like that. How, what, how do they link? And what impact does that then have on people's health and use of tobacco? Mm. There's about 10 questions in there. So yeah. <laughs> let, me go, let me go through them one by one. I suppose the most important part about the UN Tobacco Treaty is, um, which is a very long treaty that outlines all the things governments need to do to try to control what we in the health sector call the tobacco epidemic. So most people would be alarmed to know that we're on track as a global uh, community for one billion tobacco-related deaths this century. One billion. There's only seven billion of us. One in seven are on track to die because of tobacco. In light of that extraordinary estimate, um, the UN Treaty was formed. It's called the World Health Organization Framework Convention on Tobacco Control. There are 180 governments are parties to the treaty and the treaty involves this very long list of things that governments should do to try to control this epidemic. Yeah. In that treaty, there is in fact a provision that has received very little attention. And it's a provision that states that governments and their related bodies are required to not invest in the tobacco industry. However, um, most governments don't even know that that provision is there. They're just unaware of it. And at the moment of all the world's sovereign wealth funds, only five have implemented that particular provision. So we're really um, looking at enhancing awareness of what is in a UN treaty that 180 governments are parties to. Yeah. Because it's not that they um, necessarily don't want to implement it, they just haven't been made aware that there is this provision there. So often it's a problem because the health sector or the health ministers are not talking to the finance ministers. Yeah. So that's a really important part of our work. You asked about the Sustainable Development Goals. Obviously, um, in 2016, in January, they came into force, and that has been a really useful platform for us to put forward the conversation of tobacco-free investment because many big organisations around the world are talking about the SDGs. So it's a really good time to, to talk about how big an issue tobacco is. And the SDGs, there's these 17 goals that the global community has committed to trying to achieve by 2030. Goal three is good health and well-being. And most people would say, okay, I understand tobacco fits in there, which of course it does. But in fact, tobacco control, major advances in tobacco control are vital for achievement of 13 of the 17 goals. So for example, if you take um, goal one, which is poverty, in many, which is no poverty. So it's, it's addressing this global problem of poverty. If we're really going to achieve that, tobacco control has to come into the conversation because in many countries, particularly low and middle income countries, so much money is spent in the household budget on tobacco that it is not spent on education or food or clothing. Wow. Yeah. And so for example, in low income um, families in Thailand, it's about 14% of their daily household income is spent on tobacco. Yeah. So that needs to be addressed 
as part of that sustainable development goal. And the list goes on and on. My favourite goal is number 17, which is partnerships for the goal. And that's really where this work, um, I guess, resonates with people, which is we have the global health sector, people like myself, clinicians out there seeing the impact of tobacco. We are very united on tobacco. We know what happens and we know that we have to make really big improvements um, in terms of cutting tobacco use and improving people's health. 180 governments are committed to tobacco control and are busy trying to implement various provisions of the UN Tobacco Treaty. At the moment, the global finance sector is out of step with us. If the finance sector continues to invest in and seeks to profit from the tobacco industry, we're really missing a big opportunity here to all collaborate so that we can achieve this big change that is needed. And so that's what we're trying to do with tobacco-free portfolios. Find those leaders in the finance sector who will help us collaboratively work on this problem. And by that money not flowing to tobacco, they're less, they're less able to promote tobacco use throughout the world. Is that, that's, that's a very simplistic way of putting it. But you know, what, what actually happens? Yeah. Well, I think the first thing that happens is when a major financial organisation comes out and says, we will no longer have an association with tobacco, I think it sends a very strong message to the world's community that tobacco is not an acceptable product anymore. It's not that it's not an acceptable product, it's not an acceptable industry anymore. It, the health sector treats the tobacco industry very differently to all others. The health sector, uh, sorry, the gov governments treat the tobacco industry differently to all others and it's showing that the finance industry is also treating the tobacco industry differently to all others. It is a different industry. Yeah. And so it sends this really strong message and in that health world, in the public health world in particular, we use a concept of denormalisation. We are trying to denormalise tobacco use and tobacco culture mm. and finance organisations separating themselves from the tobacco industry very much enhances that sentiment of denormalisation. It's hard to make a direct link. I don't think this work directly uh, will lead to people stopping smoking, but it will contribute to denormalisation. Yeah. And I think it also corrects something that is not right, which yeah. is automatically connecting workers, for example, via their pension funds to tobacco companies without them even knowing. And I always urge people to apply current day thinking to superannuation or banking or finance. If we invented the system today, would we routinely make Australian workers owners of tobacco companies? I mean, it just sounds mad. Of course we wouldn't. Yeah. It, but we've been doing that for decades and we really just have to unravel that and um, apply current day thinking and do what we would do if we were inventing the system today. Yeah. It seems, like I don't travel heaps, but in a little bit of travelling that I have done recently, it seems that in Australia, tobacco use is kind of denormalised. Like it's, it's a little bit of a surprise actually to see people smoking sometimes, a lot of, most of the time, for me anyway. But when I go overseas, it seems uh, much more prevalent and much more common. Is that, is that true? Yeah, no, it is yeah. true. You're right. 12.8% of Australians smoke. That's the la latest data we have, which is in fact quite old now. It's 2013. We expect that that will get around the 10% mark when the latest figures come through. Yeah. And we are right down the good end of the scale globally. It's one of the lowest smoking rates in the world. I believe only Bhutan is lower than us yeah. at about 3%. Yeah. And that's because the king decided to ban smoking and it had a great effect. And so very few people 
smoke in Bhutan. But apart from that, we are uh, world leaders in tobacco control in Australia. We've had very impressive and bold leadership on the introduction of tobacco control regulation in Australia and our population has benefited enormously from that. 12.8% still too high. We do want to see that come down, but it's still very good by global standards. When you travel as an Australian, you do get shocked, I think. I think that's a very common experience that people are a bit taken aback when they see the levels of smoking in other parts of the world. But governments really are committed to changing that. So, for example, France is a great example because many people said to me, oh, you know, the French, they just love smoking, it's part of the culture, it will never change. Last year, in 2016, France became the second country in the world to implement plain packaging legislation whereby tobacco after products Australia. can... Yeah, yeah, second after Australia, that's right. So I was actually in Paris the day that that legislation was brought in on the 20th of May last year. On the 22nd of May, AXA, the big global insurer, French, uh, Paris-based global insurer, went tobacco-free. And the week before Christmas, the biggest French pension fund went tobacco-free. So tobacco culture can change. It can change. It just needs bold leadership. And we're so lucky in Australia that we have had that for decades. Yeah. Um, maybe I'll ask you a question that you might not be able to answer, so that's fine if you can't. But, I mean... Are you feeling the wrath of the tobacco industry? Not yet. Who knows what will happen in future. Um, but at the moment, um, there's nothing really very exciting to tell you apart from a few little silly, uh, a few blogs um, dismissing the work of tobacco-free portfolios. But that's just irrelevant and we take no notice of it. Yeah. And I guess... What you're, what you're, I think you, I don't know if we recorded it when you talked about this, but about making this a trademark symbol that then gets applied to portfolios that people can recognise. That's yeah. right. Well, we think that these themes of doing the right thing and responsibility, transparency, sustainability, these themes are coming through loud and fast in all aspects of life. And particularly the millennials and the younger generations are demanding those themes everywhere. So. As part of our business model, we are trademarking our logo, which I love, I should mention. Yeah, I, it looks cool. I love our logo. And we are going to be uh, offering that to funds that are tobacco-free so that they can display proudly to their members or their clients that they are tobacco-free in their relationship with the tobacco industry and um, the funding would come to us to allow us to continue and expand our work. Yeah. We are about to wrap up, so I've just got to... I normally ask two questions, but I think for this, for where the podcast is going this year, I want to change it slightly. So I want it to be about two things, like how to live well now and how do we design the kind of world that we want to move into, you know, that we want to, we want to inherit and we want our kids to inherit, but also beyond that as well. You know, what world are we designing and how can we shape that in this moment as much as possible? So I'm making these questions up on the fly a little bit, normally they're standardised, but Two last questions. One, what's, what's a small change that you've made recently that's enabled you to live better now? Yeah, what's something that you've done that's, that's helping you, uh, maybe it's helping your well-being or it's helping um, in terms of how you see the world or is it something mm, that comes to mind when good. I say I've that? Got to, I've got to think about that for a second. Okay. Something that I'm doing now is making my world better. I mean, in a very broad context, I would say that 
I don't think I could have spent the rest of my life being a full-time clinician. And um, I speak to many, particularly many young people. So I'm also, I'm an ambassador for Big Brother, Big Sister Australia. So I'm very passionate about mentorship. Yeah. And so I speak to many young people. And I think there are many young people out there who often want to do something bigger than just their daily job. And so I guess the fact that I've departed, which is a rather unusual thing to do for a specialist medical doctor, to depart um, at least partly from my daily job, is it's actually been the most rewarding and satisfying thing that I could have done. Yeah. It was a bit risky, it still is a bit risky, but it's a very interesting journey and it means a lot to me to be trying at least to solve a very big problem, even though it's a spectacularly big problem. It feels good to be one of the tens of thousands of people around the world chipping away at it and trying to make it a bit better. Yeah. Um, the second question then, I mean, perhaps, you, perhaps I can challenge you to think outside of the work that you're doing right now, because I think uh, obviously you'd love to see a tobacco-free world you know, a healthier tobacco-free world. But is that would be nice. We're a long way from that, my friend, but that would be nice. What else? What? Because it's the first time I'm phrasing this, I'm not going to phrase it that well, but what, what, what are some things, what's something that you're doing now that's, I don't know, that's helping to bring about the kind of world you want to live in? That's not, that's not a great question, but I guess what I'm trying to get at is, you know, what, what sort of world, the world, uh, <laughs> so no, I can sort of almost jump in there because I think I've yeah. thought of something. So I'm also very passionate about equal representation for women Yeah. because I really think that that problem is not as difficult to solve as we make it out to be. And for example, I'm an Australia Day ambassador and there was an article in the paper yesterday about the... Um, the Australia Day Awards, so not the Australia Day Awards, the, um, oh goodness, I've forgotten the name, but the honours, the Australian honours system. So we're Australian like, of if, the year, right? No, yeah. no, no, the, so for example, Honor people we get an Order of Australia. That's it, yeah. And the nominations came through this year, and once again, only 30% of the nominations were for women, so only 30% of the awardees are women. And I really don't think that that's a problem that needs to take very long to fix. So I'm secretly start hoping to start or at least contribute a, ca a campaign, nominate a girl, <laughs> whereby yeah. women nominate women who have done interesting or great things that are contrib contributing to the community because I think we should at least celebrate the women out there who are often behind the scenes, who often are not celebrities, yeah. but who are pulling communities together or making the world a better place. So I'd love a world where women are recognised for the great contributions that they make. They're everywhere. We just need to recognise That was a very articulate answer to my inarticulate question. Thank you. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you very much. Thank Cheers. you very much. Bye-bye. Hey, thanks so much for listening. I have a question for you. Bronwyn's journey started from asking a seemingly obvious question that uncovered some not-so-obvious truths. Is there an obvious question that is nagging at you to be asked? I wonder where the asking of it might take you. If you feel like sharing your thoughts on this or anything else about my conversation with Bronwyn, you can do so by posting something on the Facebook page, through Twitter or Instagram, or even by sending me an email, adam at subtledisruptors.com. And of course, let me know if there are subtle disruptors you think I should know about. 
Coming up next week, I'll be talking with Barry Spencer about some amazing things that have emerged from his playing with the design of the Latin alphabet. I'm Adam Murray, and I hope you feel a little more encouraged, connected, and resolute in your own quest of subtle disruption. Bye for now.